we haven't met, if you're new with us or we just haven't met, my name is Charles Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here at Red Mountain. And you're joining us on a special morning. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And for our Advent series, I want to try something on you. What I want to do is spend the next four weeks looking at John chapter 1, what we call the prologue of John. That's John 1 verses 1 through 18. Break it out over the next four weeks. And, uh, and look at the rich text and how it makes certain claims about who God is, his activity in the world, uh, his plans for the future of both his people and the creation that he loves, and, uh, and examine those claims. Because each one of those claims are really promises to you and to me. And what's interesting about John is if you keep reading, what you'll see is that he will explicitly demonstrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of each one of those claims that he makes in this prologue of John chapter 1. So we're going to look at parallel texts. We're going to look at both the claim that's made in John 1, and then we'll look as well at a text later in John that shows its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so this morning what we're going to look is this promise of a light that enters the darkness. And then we're going to look at John chapter 8, where we see Jesus make the claim that he is the light of the world. So join with me, John 1, 1 through 5, and then I'll jump over to chapter 8 and read verses 12 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in John chapter 8, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, and I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. In these words, he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O you who move in the darkness and bring light, we pray that you would help us to see, to think well, to hear from you this morning. Let your words speak to our very hearts, that we might grow in trust and conviction, uh, that you might edify us and instruct us and nourish us with your word. Would you help me, your servant, to love these friends well and to serve you and honor you with every word that I say. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the fall of 1939. 
World War II was just breaking out. And it was at that time that Great Britain imposed the strictest of blackout regulations across Britain. And of course, that was to protect themselves from German bombers that were flying overhead at night. A light could give away a target. And uh, over some time, as the war went on, they loosened some of those restrictions. But for the first few months or so, the goal was to eliminate light at night altogether. You couldn't even light a match on the street because it was said that, you could, that, that that light could be spotted from miles away up in the air. And I think it's kind of hard for us to imagine what that must have been like for the people that were there. I mean, so much of our lives are spent, that's the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning, usually it's to turn, <laughs> it's to turn on a light, and it's the last thing that we do when we go to bed, it's to, 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 to turn off a light. Um, but from reading accounts of, you know, the people that were there at that time, it just sounds like life was profoundly difficult. Uh, of course, you couldn't drive at night because headlights were, of course, eliminated. Even the dashboard lights on a car were, uh, were outlawed at that time. And uh, so you couldn't drive anywhere. But even if you had to, what you, what you would do is you would put your car on the center white line running down the middle of the road and just kind of trace it to your direction, which worked really well, unless there was somebody coming from the opposite way. And that would have accidents were happening during that time. And of course, it was dangerous to walk around. People, you would walk into things. It was so dark. People were walking into lampposts and they were walking into street furniture like tables and chairs outside a cafe. It was known for being really dangerous to accidentally step off the sidewalk into the street. You never knew what you might find there. It was incredibly dangerous. And somebody said that you couldn't see more than three feet in front of you or three feet behind you at any given time. And it was said that the hospitals in Britain were filling up even before Germany dropped a single bomb on England just because of the blackout restrictions. And it's just another example among many that we could find that tell us that life lived in the darkness is disorienting, is that it's incredibly difficult and, and it's even dangerous. And it's also a governing metaphor that the Bible uses often to describe what our lives are like in this world. One of our Advent texts, Isaiah chapter 9, says this. It says that we are a people who walk in darkness and who dwell in a land of deep darkness. But of course, that's not all the Bible tells us, is it? The Bible also makes this bold proclamation that our God is a God who moves in darkness. And brings light. In fact, it's his re- first recorded act in Genesis when the world was, was dark and it was, without, it was void and without form. It says that God looked at the darkness and said, let there be light. And he saw the light and he said that it was good. And right out of the gate, in John chapter 1, John is telling us that when Jesus came, God was moving again in the darkness And bringing another light. A light entered the darkness with Jesus. And he proposes to us that the persistence of that light lies at the very root of all of our hope. What do we know about this light? What does this text tell us about this light? Well, I just want to say two things to you. One is that when we look at this light, we see a light that guides. And we see a light that prevails. A light that guides and a light that prevails. First, a light that guides. When you think of a guide, who do you think of, or what do you think of? There, I mean, there are guides 
all over the place in just about every area of life that we want to explore. There are guides available to us. What do you think of? National Park Services have guides. Fishermen have guides. My family went on a, a guided tour of a cave just on Friday. It's really fun. When I think of a guide, I think of somebody who's probably uh, older. Like, I think of wrinkles and somebody who's smiling. I don't know why. But what you imagine, what you imagine is somebody who's more familiar with the environment than you are. And you imagine somebody who's wise and can teach you about it. Somebody who's learned to enjoy and wants to lead you into that joy. And it's somebody who's been there long before you got there. And it's somebody who will be there long after you leave. And it's the image of a God, and it's one that we're given in this text about this light that comes to us. In verse 4, this is an astounding claim. In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. And it's that very thought that Jesus is picking up on in chapter 8. In verse 12, when he says, I am the light of the world. And listen to this. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The claim that's here is that Jesus, in Jesus, we have a guide for understanding the world that we live in and what goodness looks like as we make our way through it. I want to talk about this claim three different ways. First, we see it's a claim of salvation. Listen, whenever John is talking about life and light, he is talking about salvation in Jesus. He is describing someone who brings a light or life to someone where there was once death. And this is important to us. Because when we talk about darkness, we can't just talk about environmental darkness. We can't just talk about the darkness that's around us. We also have to talk about the darkness in our own hearts and just how lost we would be without this light. And the Bible tells us that in our sin, that we are spiritually dead. And so when Jesus comes, he doesn't just bring light to a darkened world. He comes to breathe life into our darkened souls. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so just as this is a claim of salvation, this is also a very personal claim that Jesus is making to you and to me. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you read this, what I want you to see is a very personal commitment that Jesus is making to each one of his people. It's a guarantee, a promise that he makes to you and to me. It harkens back to the commitment God made to his people. As they were walking through the wilderness, the darkness of the wilderness, he went before them at night and what? As a pillar of fire. He was demonstrating not just the way to go, but he was also demonstrating his personal commitment to see them through that place. Young Israelites would have grown up learning Psalm 119 and would have said what? The, the Lord, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. What's being described here is a very personal intimacy that tells us that there's nowhere that Jesus won't go with you. That there's no no darkness, either of our hearts or that surrounds us, where Jesus is not there with us. He personally binds himself to us. And even and especially in the darkest of moments. This claim is also an exclusive claim. 
And that's simply to say that there are no other lights available to do what this one does. There is a light that brings life amongst all the many lights that promise life but can't deliver. There's an old story about how the town of Nagshead got its name. If you're not familiar, Nagshead is a coastal town on the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Uh, It was known in the early years as a place where lots of 'er ne'er-do-wells, as I said, would would, uh, populate this area. It was a way that they, it was a place that they could get away from the law, escape the law. It was also that whole area, that whole coastal area was known as an incredibly dangerous place for ships to pass in the night. So in the 1700s, as ships made their way up and down the East Coast, uh, that was a very dangerous spot. It was called the Graveyard of the Atlantic because the sandbars were incredibly unpredictable. Weather was kind of tricky out there on that point, And the Outer Banks just jut out really far to the east at that place. And so if you were a captain uh, sailing your ship at night in that area, you would look to the west toward the shore and you would look for one thing. You would look straining your eyes into the fog and you would look for light. And of course, there were lighthouses. There was a lighthouse on Cape Hatteras. You would look for that, but you would also look for lights that were bobbing up and down. Because if you saw lanterns on another ship that was bobbing up and down in the water, you knew that you were probably in safe water. And so there were these people in Nags Head called land pirates. And what they would do is at night, they would go out to the beach and they would bring their old horse or their nag and they would hang a lantern around their head. And they would walk this horse up and down the dunes to copy the light of a bobbing ship, and not kidding, they would lure ships in where they would wreck on the sandbar and they would plunder them. There are always going to be artificial lights, lights that promise life, but there is only one that can truly deliver. There will always be lots of places that we can go to seek life, but there is only one place where we'll truly find it. And I got to tell you, I can really feel this because our lives can be full of very good things. I mean, we can invest ourselves in good things that give back in really important ways. But the only place that where we'll truly find life is in Jesus. I've got a friend who loves to rock climb. And he tells me, he says, that's my source of sanity. It's like when I go out, my head clears, uh, I climb, I get the exercise. And uh, I get exactly what he's saying. I feel the same way about mountains and rivers. If I don't see them for a certain amount of time, I'm going to go a little nutty. But here's the thing. We can't take these good lights that we're surrounded by, places where we might invest ourselves, places that give back to us in important ways, and use them to replace the one true light that Jesus promises to us here. And you might have a schedule full of good things. I know many of you do. And we might volunteer in a place that's really important to us. We might give to a certain cause. We might care for certain people. We might give away our time. We might exercise. Some of you, I don't. Some of you (laughs) exercise every day. Some of you like to read a book every week. I don't know what it is for you. But we we can't trade any of those things for the light that Jesus promises us here. How do I know that? Because Jesus is the only light that was actually willing to enter darkness. When he came into the world as a baby, listen, the incarnation that we 
celebrate this time of year was just the beginning of a light coming into the darkness. The catechism said that he went on to endure what we call the miseries of this life. And that life ended with him on a cross where he was protecting us from a darkness that we will never have to experience. There are a lot of lights that promise life. But there is only one that will truly deliver. And unless we follow Jesus in true faith, all, the, all these other lights will, will, will soon fade away. But what Jesus has promised is that I am with you always until the end of the age. That's the only place that we'll find the life that we're looking for. And if the exclusivity of this claim bothers you, I want you to know you're not alone. In fact, I think it was the exclusivity of this claim that got the Pharisees all riled up at him. This is a bold, he makes this bold proclamation in the temple, and then what happens? He immediately came into conflict with the Pharisees. And this is where we begin to see that in Jesus we have a light that will one day prevail. Look back at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, it's just claiming what we already know, that there's this ongoing battle between light and darkness. It's there that we get a hint of this battle. And in chapter 8, what we see is just one of the ways this battle can look, okay? And we got to get a sense for the drama of it all, because the setting here is really, really profound. The text tells us that they were in the treasury of the temple, okay? That's in verse 20. They're in the treasury of the temple, which is one of the largest courts in the temple, huge, huge space with high, high walls. And if you look at chapter 7, you're going to see that they had just celebrated what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's a big deal. That was an annual feast they had. And there were two huge ceremonies that happened during the Feast of the Tabernacles. The first one was called the Illumination of the Temple. Hang with me here. This is really important. The illumination of the temple might have been one of their most uh, transcendent celebrations that they had all year long. Because what they would do is they would set up these massive torches, four massive torches in the temple. Some say that they were as tall as the highest walls of the temple. And they would make the young priests, of course, the young priests, climb up to the top of these uh, torches and light them after dark. So they would go on up there. Each temple had something like 65 liters of oil so it could burn all night. And they would light these things in a grand ceremony. And the flames that lit out, leapt out of these torches illuminated the entire temple. And even illuminated much of Jerusalem. And then they would dance. And they would feast. And they would drink. And they would carry on. And the whole thing was meant to celebrate God's guiding them through the wilderness. And it might have been a day later, maybe two days. I bet you could still smell the char and the burning oil in that court when Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world. He said, that light that you're so thankful for, that you're celebrating right now, you're going to find it here. The light that's been with you the whole time, You've been looking for me the whole time. And I'm here. I'm here. And of course, that didn't sit right with the Pharisees. To say that was a controversial claim might have been putting it lightly. The Pharisees uh, immediately speak to him. They hung their disbelief 
on a, technic- on a legal technicality, as they, as they did. If, if, if something didn't hit them right, they immediately appealed to process. They said, this isn't right. You're bearing witness about yourself. And what was going on there is that in Jewish law, they rightly are noting that truth has to be verified by more than one witness. But I would say that this was a disingenuous claim. They were just offended by what he said. And it was disingenuous for two reasons. One is uh, that law only applies to criminal cases. And, and, and this wasn't a criminal case. There's not an official hearing that's happening here. And there are lots of requirements in the Old Testament that were explicitly for the purpose of testing a prophet. The other thing is this, that they had already had multiple witnesses. In John 1, you had the testimony of John the Baptist. We'll talk more about that next week. In John 3, you had the testimony of one of their own, the Pharisee, Nicodemus. And in John 5, they received testimony themselves from a lame man that Jesus had healed. Those testimonies were available. They just weren't hearing them. And so what this is, is an example of what a hard-hearted unbelief can look like. And look, that can happen. Because the claims of Jesus are absolutely controversial. That challenge everything that's important to us. There is no way around that. And the Pharisees were being challenged. uh, Their their influence, their authority, they were being called. If what Jesus said was true then they were being called to submit everything that was important to them to the Son of God that was among them in that moment. And rather than, rather than rejoice that God was moving again in the world, bringing his light to bear in the darkness, they would rather hold on to what they thought they had. And that's easy to do, isn't it? Loss can be scary. It's so easy to grasp the things that we hold dear rather than to surrender to the one that promises so much more. And whenever that happens, we would ask the natural question, is this a trustworthy claim? Words can be easy. But is this claim true? Can I trust it with the things that matter most to me? And it's interesting to me that in that moment, Jesus didn't fire back with interpretations of the law. He didn't challenge them back on their own ground. In fact, it seemed like he moved right past it. Instead, what he did was he spoke to the subtext. He went right to the core of the problem. And he appealed to his relationship with the sovereign God. And as his father says, the reason you don't know me is because you don't know my father. And he said, if you want to know him, then you'll find it only by knowing me. Look back at John 1. What does it say? The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus claims the sovereignty of God himself, which for the Pharisees is a sin that should have gotten him into a lot of trouble. It was a sin worthy of of capital punishment at their hands. But listen, is he in this passage as sovereign as he claims he is? Verse 20, they were angry at him, but no one could arrest him, for his hour had not yet come. They could harden their hearts to him, but they couldn't stop him. And we hang every hope we have on the truth that the hour did come when it pleased God the Father to offer his own son 
to die for the sins of those who believe. In that moment, they couldn't silence the testimony of heaven. And in what looked like the darkest of moments, Jesus' light shone brighter than ever. In Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, wrote a song. And in that song, he compared the arrival of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, to, to a new dawn, to the sun rising, a light breaking into the darkness. Several years ago, I went with some friends of mine to Mammoth Cave. Some of you have been there, I know. You've told me about it. It's a huge cave system in Kentucky. I can recommend it to you. You should go check it out. But if you go, make sure you get a guided tour. There are several to offer. You can stay there for days and take all these tours if you want. But the one that we chose was called the Lantern Tour. I looked it up. It's still there, okay, on the website. You can go do it if you want. But it was a historical tour that that kind of led you through this cave system as people used to travel through it and, and hear about all the ways this cave was used for different purposes. And what was most interesting to me is they gave us all lanterns and we're making our way through at night. Uh, it was really fun. But what was most interesting to me was that there was actually a colony of tuberculosis patients that, uh, that, that, that set up in, uh, in a section of that cave. And there was one faithful doctor who didn't know much about tuberculosis because nobody did at that time. But he faithfully came and put his own life on the line, came in and treated them through the day and then went home at night. But what was interesting was that uh, every night he went home, he took the only light he had with him. And so the guide wanted us to know what it was like to be in that cave in complete darkness. And of course, there was a loop going around this room and he... He, uh, he said, I'm going to talk out loud so you can hear me the whole time. And uh, he left the room and he was going through this tunnel on a loop. And, and I watched and I saw his light grow slower until it faded away until you couldn't see it anymore. And I'll never forget that feeling of complete darkness. That even though I was surrounded by friends, I couldn't see them. I didn't know where they were. I held my face up in front of my hand and I couldn't see it. And all of a sudden, it felt cold. And it was scary, even for just a minute. Until the guide started coming around the corner with his lantern, speaking aloud to us. And I saw what looked like just a little glow and then a few rays. And as it came over the horizon, he came to be with us. And one lantern lit the whole room again. So there's a reason that we light candles at Advent. And we start with one, and then every week we're going to add another. You know why? It's because Advent starts in the darkness. And Advent is honest about the darkness. And it reminds us of the incredible claim that when Jesus came, he brought light into the darkness. That whoever follows him will not be in darkness, but will have the light of life forever. That's the claim of Advent. And it's a claim that we celebrate tonight. It's not night, this morning. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus. You who came, you who remain with us, you who protect us, and you who save us, would you encourage our hearts? And would you help us to trust it? to trust you, to trust our darkness to you, to trust our light to you. 
Show us the ways that you have been good to us and lead us in faith forever, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.